she can hear. Belinda, come here. I tell you, she understands, woman. You're wondering in your head. But she came when I called her. She was reading your lips. She's been a very good pupil. Belinda. Belinda, how do you say hello to a friend? Hello, and welcome to the Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture. I'm Susan Araslin. I'm David Daw. And before we get started on this week's episode, just a quick trigger warning, because we are going to be talking about sexual assault and ableism for pretty much the entire podcast. Probably less on the sexual assault side, but it is going to have to be talked about because it is a prevalent part of the plot of this film. Yep. So with that out of the way, this week's movie was Johnny Belinda starring Jane Weinman, and it is the third film in the 1948 nominees. And the first Lifetime original movie ever nominated for Best Picture. Because <laughs> that's what this is structurally. <laughs> Oh my god, it is, though. <laughs> it exactly is. Yeah. I mean, I've only ever seen Lifetime original movies in high school health class because that is apparently the way that they teach you about 90% of things in the South. <laughs> yeah. Oh, eating disorders. Let's watch a Lifetime movie about anorexia. This is that structurally in the... 90% of the action of this plot takes place just weirdly stuffed into the last 10 minutes. Things happen before then. It's not like that's the entire movie, but it has that lifetime cadence of like, suddenly somebody has a gun. And <laughs> yes. it also is a lifetime movie in that it's this weird test case of like, well, I guess I'm glad we can finally talk about sexual assault in film instead of the Hayes Code just making it so that you can't talk about it at all. But also, if this is how we're talking about it, am I happy that we can talk about it now? Like, if this is what we're doing, it, it's, uh, it's such a strange movie, specifically in the context of the way that it talks about sexual assault and the way that it talks about disabilities, because the other extremely Lifetime movie thing about it is that our title character is incredibly passive character that is really just around to be talked about for a lot of the film. And I would actually say she's not even our title character. Her infant child's name comes first in the film title, which is a metaphor for this whole movie and the way that she is treated. Now, what I will say is that I watched this movie this morning. Like, I woke up, got a cup of coffee, and watched it so that we could record today. Yeah, same. But I thought about watching it yesterday, which was the 4th of July, which happens to also be Sean, my husband's birthday. So before deciding whether or not to watch it yesterday, <laughs> and thus probably subject him to at least part of it, and me, <laughs> after having watched it, I... Uh, I read the entire plot description and then I read the production notes where they were like, yeah, this was the first movie that the Hayes Code allowed to portray rape on film and to actually talk about it. 
And I was like, oh, fuck, no, I am not watching that before going to a rooftop party. <laughs> um, and then I watched it and I was so relieved at how not graphic it was that I think that I have more of an affection for this film for not doing what the Wikipedia article indicated to me it was going to do than it probably deserves. Right. Well, I mean, I actually support that because there's two ways stories of sexual assault go terribly, terribly wrong when portrayed in film. Um, And one is what this movie does, which is make the sexual assault about how all the men around the woman feel about it for long, long portions of the film. Woo boy, yeah. (laughs) But the other one is trauma theater, right? Is let's sit and watch something horrible happen to a woman. Right. The Game of Thrones technique. This movie really doesn't do that. There are moments of that, but it is not built for that. You know, it isn't built around that the way that a trauma theater movie does. Right. Where it's like all building up to this and you, how dare you look away. And instead it's like it happens kind of suddenly and casually and... That makes it more terrifying. I kind of think it's maybe the most effective part of the film. And the vast majority of the action is not portrayed on screen and good. (laughs) Yes. I guess we should go through this plot linearly, but it's a Lifetime original movie, so there's not a whole ton of it. We should, because it it is necessary for... (laughs) It's not a well-known enough film that everyone's like, oh yeah, Johnny Belinda, yeah, I know how that goes. (laughs) Right. Well, I mean, but the reason I'm hesitating is that there's a degree to which the entire plot of this almost doesn't matter. We start off with a weird, oh God, this movie's Nova Scotia accent. It is a character to itself. (laughs) (laughs) But also it seems like everybody drops it about 10 minutes in, except for the storekeep. He's the only one just keeping that torch alive, but... Everybody else, for the first 10 minutes, does a Nova Scotia accent that's mostly just pausing like you're so angry you're gonna destroy something, and then saying a boot. And that's the whole thing. That's the whole accent. And it's super distracting, and... Uh, we get to know everyone in the town who thinks everybody in the town is an asshole. And they're not wrong. Uh, Yeah, exactly. Spoiler (laughs) alert. Everybody's right. Everyone else in the town is an asshole. They just forgot to include themselves. There's a doctor, a new doctor in town who's also kind of an asshole, but less than everybody in this town. Oh, see, I feel like the film portrays him as a saint and it becomes grating. Oh, it does. It does, and it does become grating. But he is still less terrible than everyone in this town, even though he is a smarmy know-it-all jerk to, like, everybody in the town. But through sort of going through small-town doctor life, he comes in contact with, well, half of our title character, uh, Belinda, who is a nonverbal woman. And deaf. Yes. And her family has basically made no attempt to communicate with her or teach her anything once they have figured out that she was deaf and nonverbal. And so he teaches her sign language and teaches her to read lips 
and becomes affectionate toward her, but I think the movie does a good job of having it very clearly be a sort of little sister kind of affection. There's a connection here in this small town where everybody's kind of a jerk between these two people, and she feels something kind of romantic there, and he doesn't, really. I mean, maybe. Here's my major issue, and this comes up again and again throughout the film, is that there is a lot of presumption on the part of everyone around her as to how she feels, including this doctor who is like, oh, well, she's just always felt completely on the outside of everything and just so terribly lonely. And I'm like, dude, you are projecting onto this woman. Yes. And maybe she does feel that way. It would make perfect sense considering that everybody in the town treats her like shit, including her own father and aunt, though that changes as the movie progresses. But no one ever asks this woman, how do you feel? What's it like to be deaf? Have you felt like you were isolated and alone? And are you miserable? And Jane Wyman is playing her in a way that is very charming and very guileless, but also is not terribly complex. (laughs) So I don't read like existential loneliness into her character. But I also don't read a whole lot of anything else. (laughs) Uh, No, I mean, she's a cipher in this. And I don't know how much to blame Jane Wyman for that and how much to blame the script. Because you're right, everybody is endlessly saying what Belinda wants and how Belinda's going to feel about things. How she has felt about things. Like, just ask her. (laughs) Right. It also becomes, in addition to just a characterization problem, it becomes this plot problem as we progress into Act 2, where no one really talks to her about anything ever for reasons that become making sure nothing gets tied up until this weird frenetic last 10 minutes. And you end up with this thing where the Act 1 into Act 2 turn is that the biggest jerk in town, in this town of jerks, this guy named Lockie, gets drunk at a dance and rapes her. And she becomes pregnant from this. And then a weirdly huge amount of Act 2 is completely ignoring how that makes her feel and instead talking about how the town is now gossiping that the doctor did it. Also, I want to throw in here that everyone assumes that she does not know how she got pregnant or how anyone would get pregnant. Yeah. And then doesn't tell her right this is the thing that is very strange to me that i only at the end realized well the plot doesn't work unless you do this but it also doesn't make any damn sense where you do spend all of act two going like does she know where babies come from does she know what happened to her because if she doesn't then Maybe she actually shouldn't be taking care of this child. And if she does, then the plot doesn't make any sense. Right. Because then this wait for the dramatic reveal of the town finding out who actually did this wouldn't make any sense because she would stand up for herself and fight for herself and it would become the town not believing her, which is this plot the movie doesn't really want to do. It's very weird. Because it puts all of that action that really should be on her on the doctor. 
And the doctor is continually making stupid and strange choices so that he isn't the bad guy here. Uh, you're trying not to be the bad guy, and this is your choice. But he does it all with a smile and with an erudite accent. Yeah. And, I mean, this movie basically puts a fucking halo on him. And I'm like, really? This guy? I mean, among other things, it also makes him just hugely boring yes as a character to be following is there is no sense of this guy's specific point of view in this situation because he has to be so guileless it would never occur to him that the town might believe it was his child even though he's the only person that ever hangs out with belinda then suddenly, finally going like, hey, would it be easier if I just married her? And then the dad, without asking Belinda at all, just goes, no, she would know you were pitying her and she'd hate it. And then the doctor is like, well, obviously we can't have her report what happened to her. That would just get her tangled up in scandal. And it's like the whole town knows she had a kid out of wedlock. Like she's kind of tangled up in scandal, my dude. Yeah. Like I. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Ship sailed, motherfucker. (laughs) Yeah. You just sit in this for a really long time. Like, 40 minutes of this 100-minute movie is spent wandering around in how the doctor feels about a woman he knows being sexually assaulted before Lockie comes by, because he's an idiot, basically confessing it's his kid, getting into a fight with Belinda's dad, murdering Belinda's dad, and then everybody going... Oh, it's just that age when a man falls off a cliff, I guess, and not (laughs) suspecting him at all. Then, for no real reason except we're in Act 3, the entire town has a meeting about how they need to take Belinda's child away from her. Decides that's a great idea. Decides effectively being a mob in a, like, guy's grocery store counts as legal force of law. I mean, apparently there was probably some kind of judge who was present. I don't know. But the weirder part of this is that Lockie and his wife, who was the secretary for the doctor and had a crush on him and then got pissed about the fact that he didn't like her back, and then dated Lockie and then told Lockie to keep his eyes off of Belinda which, of course, results in him sexually assaulting her in the next fucking scene because this fucking movie. Right. God, I'm starting to really hate this movie the more I talk about it. It kind of, yeah. That Stella, her name is Stella, Lockie and Stella apparently go to the town, which is now the court, and are like, yeah, we should adopt that baby from the deaf girl because everyone assumes that she has a mental disability because... I don't know, because they do. I mean, they refer to her as the dummy through the whole movie, which is horrible. Yeah. And it is cool that her dad eventually sticks up for her and is like, her name is Blinda, because once the doctor teaches her sign language, her dad realizes that actually she does not have an intellectual disability at all. It's just she's deaf and she doesn't speak. Yeah. And the dad, other than this part where he's like, oh, well, no, you shouldn't even ask her to marry you because she will know that you're pitying her, in a number of ways ends up being the best ally in this film until that fucking infuriating moment where I kind (laughs) of wanted to throw him off a cliff, (laughs) but not literally. (laughs) 
Yeah. I... It just seemed so out of character. Like, they're so poor. And they're so in debt. And they're having a rough time. And dad is not getting any younger. And the aunt is not getting any younger. And Belinda now has a kid to take care of. The idea that the doctor would come and say, hey, I could marry her. And, you know, then take some of the mouths to feed off of your hands and the dad being like, nah, she'll just feel like you're pitying her was a weird turn for me. It super was. And it's just there so that nobody can say the doctor didn't do the obvious solution here, which is just marry her and get her out of this terrible small town. Basically that scene is there to morally absolve him. Right. And it sucks. But then, of course, that's what they're planning after the dad dies. <laughs> so why even bother? Right. Anyway, then they come to take Belinda's kid away. Stella has a change of heart. Lockie confesses again to what he did because he's an idiot, in addition to being a terrible human being, and goes in and tries to take the baby anyway. Belinda shoots him, cut immediately to her on trial for murder. When you read the plot description of this movie on Wikipedia, the entire last paragraph of the movie's plot description takes maybe 15 minutes of the movie, maybe? Like, at the end, there's just this huge amount of action. There's this meeting. They decide to take the baby away. They come to take the baby away. One of them has a change of heart. The other one gets shot and dies. There's a whole court case. Nobody believes anybody. The doctor testifies. Nobody believes the doctor. Stella finally confesses. Belinda's found innocent. Maybe we should have, like, spaced this out a little better. Like, maybe this should have been more of the movie. Also, I don't know how trials work in Canada or did at whatever decade this is set in but she has an interpreter she keeps saying please give me my baby and the interpreter is like well i don't think she understands the questions that i ask her and i'm like no motherfucker she's upset yeah what you should say back is please answer the question like a lawyer would say instead of i guess she's just not very bright like no dude no Y'all put her on trial, probably didn't even tell her what the fuck was going on, because that has been the case for the whole movie. And then they say, okay, well, let's have the doctor do the translating for her. And then they say, oh, well, we can't trust anything the doctor says because he's a witness in this trial and is all tied up in it. And he left a card saying that he was the dad, even though he testified that he wasn't, because the card that he leaves with Belinda says, I found a house for us in wherever. It's small, but it has a little room for our son. And I'm paraphrasing, but he says our son. Yeah. And everyone's like, well, this is absolute proof that you are the one who impregnated her. And here's the thing. Does Belinda know that? when she was assaulted that that's what resulted in the kid or does she think that because she's in love with the doctor that that's where her kid came from and we don't know because nope. the movie never actually interrogates what she understands about what has happened to her because it's more interested in condemning people for gossiping than it is for condemning people for making all of these assumptions about her and for essentially deciding her entire life for her constantly. It brings up that that's bad, but it always kind of brings it up in these very 
sudden ways where it's way more interested in interrogating the gossip than it is in interrogating that because I think it sort of knows that if we don't have somebody do that, we don't know how to make this plot operate, which is shitty. Find a new way for the plot to operate. But that seems to be what's going on is that the movie goes like, wow, some people are doing that and it's really, really bad. But also some people are doing that and that's okay because we kind of are just explaining to the audience what's going on. And so those people making assumptions about what Belinda wants and making all of Belinda's decisions for her are okay and good people and kind of saintly, actually. But the town doing that is bad because it's an extension of them gossiping. Right, and there's actually this kind of Greek chorus trio of old women who have what are arguably some really funny lines that are entirely inappropriate where they are, I guess, speaking for the town, essentially. One of them has this line, they're at a dance, and this is right before Belinda gets assaulted, where somebody says, oh, look at so-and-so, she's her own worst enemy, and the other one says, not while I'm alive, which was funny. (laughs) Yeah. But also them commenting on the situation with her and her kid and the doctor and everything else, given what we as the audience know, feels super flip. Yeah. And the tone of this film is kind of all over the place. I agree. I I am torn about this movie only because it is such a singular moment in film history in this way. This does open the door for much better movies than this to be made. But it also weirdly is... It's kind of the same thing we talked about in It Happened One Night, which is a much, much, much better movie, but that it also opens the door for all of the even worse than this movies that get made. Right. You can see the seed of, you know, Lifetime original movies, but also to just tons and tons of movies about sexual assault and about people with various disabilities that fetishize those things. Because... This movie spends a lot of time doing that. And specifically movies about disabled people played by actors who do not have a disability or at least don't have the same disability. I'm not going to presume the status of every actor who's ever played someone with a disability. But people who are pretty able-bodied playing people who are not and then getting Academy Awards for them. (laughs) Uh... And on top of it, playing it in such a way where that person has no agency. And, like, this is a thing that we are going to see over and over and over again as we go through this project. And the one that immediately springs to mind is Rain Man, though I'm sure there are plenty before that. (laughs) Yes, totally. In the way that, like, again, I don't know how much I want to blame Jane Wyman for this performance and how much I want to blame the script, but, like... Jane Wyman is totally doing the blueprint for Give It, getting an Oscar for just, like, standing there and keeping your head held high, even though you're a person who so much bad stuff's happening to. Right. God, that's, I mean, boring among all the other sins of that. (laughs) It's just, ugh. And it sucks. I mean, it just sucks. Like you, I kind of have talked myself into hating this movie more and more. 
as we've talked about it. I mean, the best thing that I can say about it is that while watching it, even though I was aware of all of these things, it didn't make me want to scream. Yeah. But again, I feel like a big part of that is that I read the entire plot description and it played out less egregiously than it sounds like on paper, which is not a great endorsement of a film. (laughs) Yes, but I also totally know what you're talking about because there are so many things this movie could do worse. Yes. Like, part of that is, I guess, to this movie's credit, but also part of that is just don't make this movie. Like, don't do all the things this movie does that could go even more wrong than this movie goes wrong. That's totally fair. (laughs) When I was watching it, I kept having this thought of the doctor keeps insisting to other people that Belinda has a rich in her life, that she is capable of and eager to learn, that she's a fairly intellectual and smart person. Yeah. And then entirely disregards her anytime that that is not just him explaining this to everyone else. Never actually asks her these things. I mean, maybe we are to presume that this stuff has happened off screen, that they sit around and have conversations about like life and feelings and whatever else but we don't actually see any of those we don't actually even see her speaking for herself there's a scene where he takes her to a specialist in the city which i do they even name what the city is it frankly doesn't matter uh somewhere in nova scotia not even the city it's a town and she says nothing to the doctor and the doctor says nothing to her yeah the specialist doctor not one thing he doesn't ask the doctor to ask her a question he doesn't speak to her in sign language which i would presume he knows since he is a specialist for deaf patients (laughs) they have no interactions he assesses her as if she is incapable of participating in her own medical treatment and again this is because the actual point of that scene in the movie is to see the shock on the doctor's face when the specialist says she's pregnant the movie doesn't care about which again not a thing the specialist talks to her about yep and he tells the doctor oh yeah well you know there's no signs of congenital deafness or nonverbalness Uh, And they say earlier in the film that she experienced this after an illness when she was an infant, which I don't know what that would be, but sure, that can happen. But he doesn't feel like it's necessary to tell the woman that her own child is... Oh, and also, by the way, you're having a child. (laughs) I mean, it's just just wild. (sighs) Yeah, and it's like... It's like she's a pet that he took to the vet. And this is a grown woman who is about to be a mother. It sucks. And like, again, there are all of these weird things where I think that in the scene that's supposed to play as like the specialist assumes that's why the doctor brought her. And it does read that way. But also, shouldn't this be something that she gets to hear? The doctor keeps doing things that are shitty to her for the sake of the plot working. And then the plot keeps going, no, 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 that was actually the best and most saintly thing a human being could do. (laughs) Yeah. There are all of these examples, not telling her about it, 
not freaking out when the specialist goes like, so it won't be passed on to her kid. He doesn't go like, what the hell are you talking about her kid? He just takes it in stride and is like, okay, good to know. <clears throat> well, I guess we must tell the aunt about it. Right, yes. The whole thing sucks. And the whole thing just sucks in a way where it doesn't stand up to very much scrutiny. It kind of just happens as you're watching it, which, again, given the subject matter of this movie... I've seen movies that are much, much worse than just happening. But the further I get from it, the more I go back and think about it, the shittier it is, the more sort of all the piping, all the, the intricacies of making this thing work are, are just sort of... It's not that this movie isn't shitty, it's that it kind of stuffs all the shitty stuff behind a wall and goes like, no, 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 look over here. I think really what it is is that it deals with sexual assault in a way that is not so voyeuristic and titillating that while I was watching it, that sense of relief was so palpable for me. Because, you know, I watched all of Game of Thrones. <laughs> I know how that shit can work. And I didn't expect that in 1948 for the first film that deals openly with sexual assault instead of like, you know, tiptoeing around it and using euphemisms for what happened to her or whatever would be super graphic. But I didn't know that they weren't going to do something. And instead it's like, we have a cut to black and then it's over and there's no, oh, and now we see her the next day and she is like bloody and her clothes are torn or something. You know, it's it's pretty low key, though she does seem sad afterward. And then the doctor shows up and is like, oh, why are you sad? Oh, you're just lonely. Oh, I'm so sorry I haven't been able to come by. And it's like, man, you, you. Hmm. There was like an opportunity there for you to find something out and you just threw it away. <laughs> There's this weird moment of hopefulness. The more I think about it, the more it isn't that the assault is the best part of the movie in terms of filmmaking. It's that you are weirdly hopeful from it, both because it isn't very graphic and because it is very clear that the violation here, the thing that is terrible is that he is making all these assumptions about how she feels. That he does this weird, like, I bet that's the first time a man's ever kissed you thing. Right. That you're like, oh, this movie actually understands something about what's happening here. And then it proceeds to have everyone else do the exact same thing to her, not in a context of sexual assault, but that same violation keeps happening to her over and over again, and people keep going like, yeah, but it's kind of fine when he does it. Right, because they're well-intentioned. Right. But because I was so relieved from that, I really didn't take into consideration... That's not true. I got angry about the ableism. I just didn't get as angry as I am now after discussing it. Yeah, I do think that like a lot of this movie is worse in retrospect because it's... In the moment, a lot of it is so nothing, or a lot of it is just like, huh, that's weird. I'm sure we'll get around to that later or something. I found myself thinking like, oh, I guess there's going to be like a dramatic scene where Belinda talks about what happened to her at some point later in the movie that we're building up to. And it's only in retrospect that I'm like, that never happened. We never actually hear at all how she felt about any of this. No, the way that any of it is revealed is that Stella says that her now dead husband told her that 
the kid was his. Right. In the moment, a lot of stuff just feels like a weird moment and not like, oh, this is going to be the entire movie. It isn't that there is this strange moment where the doctor is absolved of all responsibility here. It's that this movie is far more concerned with absolving him of responsibility than it is with exploring how Belinda feels about anything. And also him constantly saying, well, she actually has feelings and thoughts and opinions made me go, okay, well, at least this movie recognizes that that is true, even if it is not playing out that we get to know or see any of this. Yeah, I we should rate this movie. One! <laughs> yeah, I could be convinced to go all... No, I couldn't be convinced to go all the way up to a two. This movie is also just not very well made technically. Like, there's more than one shot outside where you can tell, like, it's kind of a botched take, but they sort of went like, eh, well, good enough. Light's fading, so let's go with it. <laughs> yeah. There's some aerial shots at the start of this movie where we haven't invented stabilizers yet, and that's a problem. Those are all such minor problems given the huge thematic concerns with the way this movie is dealing with the central issues that it's trying to talk about, but there's not even something to salvage here. You know, there's not something to go like, well, at least X. Right. So, yeah, it's not wildly racist. Well, no, I guess it kind of is with the Irish stuff. Yeah, no one. This movie sucks. Yeah, it sucks. <laughs> Don't watch it. Yeah. It's bad. The only person I feel bad for saying this about is that I do think that Jane Wyman brings a lot of intelligence and charm to this movie there is a part where after her dad dies and he is lying out in the family home and the community has come over that she takes it upon herself to begin signing the lord's prayer and everyone says it along with her which is kind of the only moment in the film other than when she shoots Loki that the script gives her something where she takes initiative for herself yeah and the show of grief is actually quite moving there's a point early on where she's taught some signs for the first time where you can see her eyes light up which is kind of a feat in a black and white film yeah <laughs> i mean i think she is doing a good job with a character that has been characterized for her as not terribly active and she is doing her damnedest to bring some kind of agency to her but there's just not any really to be had on the basis of the script and that's literally the only thing i feel bad giving this film a one for um but it is not enough to bring it up <laughs> exactly because it's maybe two minutes of the film where belinda has any agency whatsoever is an active character in her own story and I agree with you that Jane Wyman's grabbing those moments for dear life and doing everything she can with them. But she's also, you know, spending the rest of the film given the, um, oh, what's her name? The Saint movie we watched. Song of Bernadette look. Yeah, given the Song of Bernadette look. Just stare gently into the middle distance with vacancy in your eyes and look pretty. Yeah. And the thing is, there's nothing else for her to do. Like, I feel bad about it, but it's true. <laughs> oh, no. I don't blame her for that, but that is the vast majority of her performance. Yeah. And it sucks. Yep. What are we watching next week? Next week, we are watching The Red Shoes, which uh, 
I guess is based on the fairy tale. That's a big swing of a poster. Yeah, you know, I can't even say that it is a bad poster, though, because it's very cover of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde from 1898, which is an aesthetic I love. So I think this movie is going to be terrible. (laughs) Here is the one thing I will say is bad about this poster, is that if you just filed the names off of the poster and handed it to me and asked me if Vincent Price was in this movie, I would say 110% Vincent Price is in this movie. And Vincent Price is not in this movie. Unless he is uncredited in a background moment, he is not in this movie. So tune in next week to find out if Vincent Price should have been in this movie. I feel like you really blew it with 48, starting with Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Yeah, it's like the it happened one night year, but thankfully not as long. Oh, yeah. Where it just sort of feels like a foregone conclusion that we've watched the best picture already and the Academy picked wrong, but we got to sit through the rest of these fucking (laughs) movies. Uh, So, yeah, tune in next week to find out if we're right about that. Yeah. And until then... Uh, This was a Lifetime TV movie. Like, that's what this was. With all of the baggage that comes with one. Exactly. There are worse things in the world, but also maybe don't nominate those for Best Picture at the Oscars. Please. (laughs) Goodbye, everybody. everybody. Well, all right. If you don't want business, I can go somewhere else. 